Uh, we have a, a real treat for the message today. Uh, the speaker, she's someone that's extremely special to me. Actually, uh, Lisa, who's going to be coming up soon, she's my cousin. For real. I don't know if you guys ever knew that, but her mom and my dad are actually cousins, so we're second cousins. And uh, we're both from New York. And uh, we actually didn't have much of a relationship prior to Korea. Uh, what happened was our families are just so huge that it was just, we rarely saw each other when we were growing up. We just had really big families. And I knew that I had this random cousin that was in Korea when I first came. And her parents told her that I was here and, you know, we we're supposed to meet up and, you know, be family in Korea. And so I had no idea. I didn't know her information. I didn't have her number. There was no way that I was going to be able to, I don't know, coordinate us getting together and being best friends for life because we're supposed to, because we're family. And uh, <clears throat> what happened was one of the first couple of Sundays that uh, her and I were attending this church, uh, I I don't know if you guys know, but Pastor Christian, he has a sister, an older sister. Oh, Sonia, welcome back, honey. Um, Pastor Christian has uh, an older sister whose name is Erin Lee as well. And so we have the same exact name. Um, it's a little bit bizarre for him. He thought it was weird. Someone said it was prophetic, but I just think it's bizarre. But so when we first, uh, when I first came, everyone was confused because there was two Erin's two Aaron Lees and two Aaron Lees that come from New York. Um, and cause Aaron was from New York. Uh, she was living in New York for a while before she came out to Korea. And so she came up and she made an announcement and she, everyone started calling her like Aaron senior. And uh, she wasn't feeling that, you know? And so she had to clear it up. She went up one Sunday and was like, for your information, I'm Aaron Lee. There is another Aaron Lee. So for everyone's reference, I am Aaron the young and she's Aaron the Younger. And so before I became pastor's wife or even a pastor, that's what everyone called me, Aaron the Younger. So I would even sign the offering slips, Aaron the Younger, just so everyone knew who I was. And so she made this announcement, and uh, my cousin Lisa was sitting there and was like, Aaron Lee from New York? Wait, what? Is my, is my cousin here? And she came up to me, and she goes, are you Aaron? I'm like, yeah, but there's two Aaron. She goes, but you're Aaron Lee. And I'm like, oh, there's two Aaron Lees. And she goes, but you're Aaron Lee from New York. I'm like, there's two Aaron Lees from New York. She's like, is your cousin Justin? And I was like, wait a second. Lisa? She's like, Aaron? I'm like, oh! We did one of those. I don't know if you guys ever watched that YouTube clip, the beep that girls say. And when girls get together, it's like, you know what I'm talking about? That was us. And I was like, oh my gosh. And so we actually um, got to meet. We met a couple of times before when you we were younger, but like it was so far from our memory. Um, we got connected here uh, at the church and man, God really brought us together and we grew. We saw each other grow, be challenged. And uh, she saw me be raised up into the pastor that I am today. And I got to see her be raised up to the missions director that she is today. And so she heads up all everything that has to do with missions in our church. Um, she is gangster. Uh, she's crazy New York. Um, you guys will hear it when you pre when she preaches today. Uh, but she's such a powerful, anointed woman of God. And I'm so honored and excited to have her uh, have the pulpit tonight. So let's give a warm welcome to my cousin, Lisa Kim. All right. Oh, 
Jordan. Oh, snap. What's up, Emmaus? Before I start, may I just say, my heart is bursting right now. Like, even when we were doing the praise, I was thinking about my message, and I said, God, you know, give me clarity, help me to speak what they need. But I couldn't even focus on that dialogue with the Lord because my heart was just bursting from that praise, right? The spirit of praise and worship that you guys carry. So, yeah, thank you, Pastor Aaron, for that awesome introduction. Uh, I'm so honored to be here today. And, um, yeah, basically, I have been waiting a lot for today. I was asked by Tina and Rona quite a while ago to speak at Emmaus. And as soon as they sort of approached me with that offer, I was like, oh, man, I have so much to say. Like, Lord, help me to keep it simple, you know, help me to just have it be precise. So I come to you today with an awesome word. And, yeah, I can say that, right? Okay, rewind. I come to you today with an awesome word. Oh, yes. Amen. Amen. So uh, basically today, I'm going to make three points, three very simple but very uh, fundamental, important points. Point number one, Jesus is truth. Okay? Point number two, Jesus sets you free. Number three, Jesus sets the nations free. Amen? Okay. So we're going to start off by reading from the Word. If you have your Bibles, if you could open up to John chapter 8. Verse 31 to 32. John chapter 8, verse 31 to 32. When you get there, say amen. Amen. Glory. Okay. So let's read it all together. One, two, three. Shijak. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Amen. Right? So you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Okay? So before I go into my message, I have a question. So what campuses are represented here today? We have Yonsei, right? Yonsei. Okay, any other universities? Just shout it out. Okay, awesome, awesome. But what about in Korea? Do you have any, like, Ide? Ide? Any SNU? Seoul National students? No, no? How about Korea, Korea University? Koryode? Okay, okay, awesome, perfect. So for the Yonsei students, I have a question. What is the motto of your school? True shall set you free, right? True shall set you free. Awesome. For the Ide students, what's your school motto? <laughs> it's all good. It's all good. So apparently for Ide, right, your motto is Jin Son Mi. Right? So Jin meaning truth, Son, goodness, Mi, beauty. Not bad. Okay. Korea University students, where are you guys? Where are you at? Okay. Awesome, awesome. So KU Korea Day, what's your motto? Do you know? This is justice. That, that's, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. So... Almost, almost. That was really good. So for Korea University, it's libertas, right? Liberty, justicia, justice, and veritas. What's veritas? Truth, right? So even for all of the universities, or most of the universities represented here today, right, in the model of your school, you have some variation of truth, 
right? This is a concept that is spoken of widely. It's very respected, right? So, but I want to go a little bit deeper into what it, it actually means. What exactly is truth? So we know from the verse, it says, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free, right? So here we see clearly that truth is good, right? It's powerful. It sets you free, right? But what, what is this truth that we're talking about? You know, what is this truth that sets me free? Like, what is this, like, this notion of truth, this concept of truth that has the ability to set us free? Like, how do you define it? How do you put words to it? Right? So, okay, so I did a little bit of the research for you. So let's say if you look up the definition of truth in the Oxford Dictionary, it says that the roots of this word come from the Old English, meaning uh, trioth or trout, some variation, right? Similar pronunciation. And it means faithfulness or constancy, okay, right? And the formal definition of truth is that which is true according to fact or reality. What, what does that, they use the word true to define truth. That gives me no clarity, right? Like, what, what does that mean? That gives me no clarity, okay? So, this is the definition that the world gives us. But what is reality, right? According to the dictionary definition of truth, like faithfulness, constancy, reality. But what is reality? What is constant? Right? Stay with me. It's going to get, it's, it's, it's piecing together. Right? So what I want to propose to you is, you know, what is real to me, for example, it might not be real to you. Okay? So for example, today I was spending time with the visiting Filipino missionary. Right? Philippines. Right? I was with this Filipino missionary where I was taking him on a tour of uh, Seoul with my other uh, co-worker. And in the midst of this, I happened to miss two phone calls from a Mr. Randy Kim. Okay? Because I think he was calling about missions deposits or something. So let's say in this situation where I missed two calls from Randy, to me, my reality is, you know, I was hosting this Filipino missionary and I missed two calls from Randy. That's reality to me. Right? But one variation of reality to Randy can be like, what is the deal? I tried to call Lisa two times, and she's ignoring my phone calls. That can be reality to Randy, correct? The same situation, two like, variations of reality. Right? So in this situation, reality is relative. But let's, say, let's think about something even bigger, right? a grander scale. Let's say, what is truth, what is reality when it comes to life, the value of life? Okay, so let's say, let's transport ourselves to the nation of India. Okay, pretend you're the beautiful nation of India. And let's say that there's this poor, impoverished family in India. They have four girls. The mother just gave birth to the fifth daughter. And the father's like, no, we already have too many girls. We don't need this one. If she lives in this nation, she's just going to suffer. And uh, she's just going to suffer. Life is going to be hardship. Let's just put her out in the hammock in the back and just leave her to die. You know, there are stories like this that come out of rural India. Families, they don't have enough money to support the child. They don't have enough money for the dowry. So they just leave the child in the hammock. The child is left to die. The birds come and eat away the flesh. It's dead. Right? Pretty cruel. It's pretty cruel. But it happens. So let's say a few weeks later, all these American, like, human rights activists, they come to the family. And you say, you know, Mr. Mr. Gandhi, you know, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Gandhi, we heard all the way from a suburban home in Annandale, Virginia. You know, I heard in my Human Rights Watch email update that you left your daughter out to die in a basket, right, in the backyard. I think that's incredibly cruel, right? I think that's incredibly cruel. I think you should change the way you live. That's not right, 
this could very feasibly happen. But then let's say in this situation, Mr. Gandhi, he might be poor, but he's pretty smart. And you know what he says to this human rights watch activist? He said, okay, but you know, let's say, Mr. Smith, if our family, if the Gandhis, if we had enough money, you know, we would have had the opportunity to maybe get an ultrasound taken for my wife. We would have known beforehand that she was a girl. And then we would have just had an abortion, right? You did the same thing, don't you, in your country, Mr. Smith? Mm. It's if you pay other people to do the dirty work for you, and you sterilize the process by calling it abortion as opposed to death. Oh, snap. <laughs> right? So in this situation, we have, like, even when it comes to the value of life, right, what is the value of life? It becomes very relative, right? When you think about the Indian situation, oh, man, that's so cruel. How could you possibly do that? I refuse to let that, not on my watch, never. But then that happens every single day, not only in America, but especially in Korea, right? It becomes very relative. So, so if you follow the definitions, right, if you follow the logics, if we follow the arguments of the world, we can't really find a tangible definition of truth. Everything is relative. However... Where can we find the definition of truth? Jesus, where can we find the definition of truth? We can find the definition of truth in the word of God. Right? What do we read in John 14, 6? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. I am the truth. No one comes to the Father except through me. Right? Jesus is the truth. And so basically, before I go on tonight... I want to really just set one thing straight. Right? Truth is not relative. Right? I don't know what you might be taught in your universities. I went to very similar universities. Truth is not relative. Truth is not your interpretation of reality or morality. Okay? Truth is a person. Truth is a person. And this truth is Jesus. Okay? And if you have Jesus, you have the truth. If you know Jesus, it is Jesus who sets you free. Amen? Awesome. So now I have a question for everyone in this house tonight. Who here has been set free by Jesus? Oh! Nice. Okay. So I know that... Very good. Yeah. Be proud of the fact that you've been set free. I know that a lot of you attended the New Wine Retreat, right? We are praying to that at New Philly. A lot of you... Who, who here was at the New Philly Churchwide Retreat? Right? That... Amazing. There were so many beautiful, powerful, crazy encounters with Jesus at the altar at both of these events. Right? And you know, I've heard your testimonies, Emmaus. I've heard some of these testimonies about how God just like chased you down with his love, you know, set your hearts ablaze for him. Crazy 180 degree like transformations and changes. Right? So, but at the same time, you know, we have been able to encounter Jesus, right? We've been able to encounter this truth that is Jesus. We've been able to be set free, you know, but there's so many people out in the world who haven't had this encounter with Jesus. They haven't had the revelation that Jesus is the truth, that he sets us free, right? But, you know, but for the time being, let's just focus on what God has been doing in our lives. I know many of you guys here, uh, some of you may have been set free from unforgiveness. I know that's my own personal testimony, Right, being set free from unforgiveness, being set free from depression, right? That's also my testimony. Being set free from lust, man, that's like everybody, so many, right? Anger, 
hey, let's be real. You know, Satan, he, he fights dirty, right? So there's so many different strongholds that we have been set free from in this room. Right? You had an encounter with Jesus, right? The lies and the false identities were canceled. The truth set you free. Amen? Right? Whether it's through your healing and deliverance, whether it was through the new wine retreat, whatever. The truth has set you free. You are living, breathing testimonies of that. Right? But I have a question. How did this truth set you free? Right, let's go a little bit deeper. Like, I'm a fan of going a little bit deeper, if you've noticed, right? So how was it that you got set free by this truth? Like, for example, it wasn't that maybe one day you had deep unforgiveness against your father, right? And the next day you said, you thought to yourself very rationally, you know what? This unforgiveness I have against my father, it is such a waste of time. I should stop living my life that way. Is that, is that the way that you were set free from unforgiveness? Probably not. Probably not. Like, that was not my testimony, right? Like, for me, uh, my own story was that I was instantly delivered of unforgiveness towards my father at the altar, actually. It was at a new Philly. Back then, it was called JSCM. It was at a summer retreat uh, back in 2007. And there was an altar call for forgiveness, uh, for unforgiveness, if you needed healing in your heart. I came up to the altar, and a very anointed uh, pastor, he basically laid his hand on my head. And he prayed in the name of Jesus. And in the name of Jesus, unforgiveness was broken off. Right? And so basically at that moment, I had, I had an encounter with Jesus where he became very tangibly real to me. Right? Maybe I, I basically grew up in church thinking of Jesus you know, as someone that I worship, someone that I admire from afar. I sing praise songs to. But at that moment, like, at that altar, Jesus became very real to me, became tangibly real. Wow, I sang all these songs about Jesus being the healer, but man, he actually literally healed me. All these memories that I had of my father being so abusive to my mother, all these memories I had of just verbal abuse, physical abuse, these memories that would conjure up tears and anger and hatred, like at, in a split second, like those memories, they didn't have that power over me anymore. You know, I had encountered Jesus. I knew Jesus, and at that moment, I was set free. Amen? Right? So, here from this uh, personal testimony, we can see that Jesus can set us free on an individual level. But you guys were all testifying to that as well. You have been set free from an encounter with Jesus. But do you know that similar to how Jesus can set us free on an individual level, he can also release his freedom on a national level. Okay, so that's like the thrust of my message to you tonight. And I want you guys to actually, why don't you flip over to Romans 12, chapter 2. Romans 12, chapter 2. Romans 12, verse 2. Okay. And why don't we read it all together? One, two, three. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Okay? Renewal of your mind. This is a very key phrase. And right now, I'm going to transition into a time of explaining to you exactly how the truth can set people free, how the truth can set nations free through the transformation, through the renewal of the mind. Okay? So, right now, what country are we in right now? Korea. Korea. Right? If you look out on the streets, Korea is a pretty prosperous country. Right? Korea's a pretty prosperous country. You have, like, very, very clean subway stations. I know that's not the case in New York. 
You know, you have Incheon Airport, which is beautiful. You can't say the same for a lot of airports in America. You know, Korea's really prospered and developed. But who knows that Korea did not get here overnight? Who knows that Korea is actually a pretty miraculous story? The story of Korea's development is a testimony of God's grace, God's favor, and his, and his faithfulness. Okay? So let's just, you know, let's rewind the clock a bit. Let's go back to the year 1910. So who knows? From the year 1910 to 1945, what period was this in Korean history? Right? You guys are all smart. So from 1910 to 1945, it was the Japanese colonial period. So during these times, the Japanese, they came into Korea, and they said, hey, what's up? This is our land. You guys are our servants. You're going to work for us. You're going to work for the empowerment of our Japanese empire. You know, your language doesn't exist. Your culture doesn't exist. Your name, Korean name, shh, Japanese name. Right? Your god, Confucian, whatever, no, bow down to the emperor. That's what happened, right? So in the midst of this, what had happened was that the Korean people, they were ingrained with this notion that they, were, that they weren't really human, that they were just subjects. They didn't have identity. They didn't have culture. They didn't have a sense of pride, right? This is what was fed to them day after day, right? And it was sort of enforced by law as well. And it was internationally recognized, right? But let's say um, if you fast forward a little bit, we have missionaries coming into the nation of Korea, like little by little, right? We have people being martyred, right, for the sake of the gospel in this nation, little by little. And then I have a question. What is, what is the activity that many Ajumas take part in across this nation from about 4.30 a.m. to maybe around 6 a.m. every day? Okay. So I was doing some research. Hey, be proud. So I was doing a little bit of research for this message, and did you guys know that the history of Sebekido is actually quite amazing? Yeah. So it's not just like super ambitious, zealous Ajumas getting up to pray, but what had happened was that, you know, back in the day, Korea was not as Christian as it is today, right? Freedom of religion was not as prevalent as it was today. So back in the day, it was more Buddhism, it was more Confucianism. During the Japanese colonial age, it was more the Shintoism that was more prevalent. So if by any chance a Korean person received the gospel, if they became a follower of Jesus Christ, they were very heavily persecuted, right? By their friends, by their family, by the police, by the government. So what would happen was that these Christians, because they weren't able to freely worship in their own homes, what they would do is they'd wake up early in the morning, early in the morning at like 4.35, and they'd all go out to the mountains. They'd go to the mountains, and it was at these mountains that they'd start to worship, and they'd praise God with freedom, right? So fast forward to 2012. I know some of you, you may be uh, familiar with some of the prayer mountains, right? There are prayer mountains all across Korea. They're very famous for this. So you can see how even from the beginning, that there were those seeds of prayer that were being sown in the nation of Korea, Right? Early morning prayer, dawn prayer. So in the midst of the Japanese colonialism, there was, you know, God's presence was stirring. It was stirring little by little. Okay? And then, who knows what happens in the year 1907 in the city of Pyongyang. There was a big revival in the city of Pyongyang. Right? So what had happened was that uh, there, was a base, there was basically a really awesome, powerful move of the Lord. Right? People were just... Uh, drawn to repent in front of their brothers and sisters, and the Holy Spirit was poured out with great fire. 
So we can see how there is this tension even from the beginning in Korean history. We have the Japanese colonial presence, but we also have the Pyongyang revival where the Lord's presence was really poured out as well. Right? So we see this tension. Right? But let's go, let's keep on going forward. Continue to really follow Korea in the path of history. And we see that starting with 1907, and as these Christians who are already worshiping Korea started to grow in their faith, they started to manifest the truth of Genesis 127. And it says in this uh, verse that God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So like I, what I said back a few minutes ago was that during the Japanese colonial invasion, Korean people were told, you know, you have no identity. You have no culture. You have no name. You have no pride. Right? You are just our subjects. You are just our servants. But what happened as the gospel made its inroads into the nation of Korea was that the truth of Genesis 127 started to be revealed. No, I'm not just a subject. I've been made in the image of God. Right? I've, I've been chosen by God. I'm the apple of his eye. People were starting to have a revelation of the identity that they had in Christ. This is what was happening in the nation of Korea. Okay, let's fast forward a few more years. We have from 1950 to 1953, it was a Korean War. There's a lot of uh, killing. There's a lot of devastation, poverty, so many deaths. Right? During this time, the na nation was divided. But before it was divided, what happened to all of the Christians that were in North Korea? These people who had received the fruits of the Pyongyang revival, what happened? Right? Many of them, they had to actually flee to the south or they, they left to other nations. So if you follow the trajectory here, you see that the Lord poured out his spirit in 1907 at the Pyongyang revival. Right? People encountered him. They tasted and saw that he was so good. Right? They're, pray they're sowing their seeds of prayer into the nation. They come down during the Korean War. These, uh, these North Koreans, these people who have such a rich history of faith, they come down to South Korea. Right? And we see that the momentum of Christianity in this nation, it continues to, uh, continues to just increase and build and just really expand in intensity. Okay? So if we go along Korean history. Let's think of March 1st, 1919. This is known as Korea's day, basically day of independence or declaration of independence. What had happened on March 1st, 1919 was that there were, there was a gathering of religious and professional leaders in the city of Seoul. And they said, you know what? These Japanese colonial rulers, they have been here for a really long time. They have taken away our identity. They have taken away our culture, but you know, we need to make a stand. Right? Because they had the revelation that they were made in the image of God. They were not just mere servants. Right? So there was a gathering of about 33 religious and professional leaders. And out of these 33 people, 15 of them are actually Protestant. Right? So do you see what's happening here? I know this is sort of a long chain of events. But what you see little by little was that as the gospel uh, as the gospel entered into the nation of Korea, we see how people have a greater and greater revelation of their identity in Christ. Whereas Satan wanted to keep them entrapped, right, by saying that they had no culture or their identity, the gospel made a stand, fought against that, right? And people were sort of having the revelation of their identity, right? They experienced a transformation by the renewal of the mind. So as we continue to follow along the path of Korean history, we see that the Dawn Prayer Movement continues. Right? North Korea prayer warriors are now in South Korea. During the 1960s, during the 1970s, there was rapid development in this country. Right? Crazy 
because if you think about like pictures that you may see of South Korea during the war, during 1950 to 1953, you see orphans, right? So you, you see lots of people who are homeless. You see women who had to sell their hair for wigs in order to buy, in order to get money to buy food. Korea was in utter devastation right after the war, right? But during the 60s. During the 70s, as time continues to pass by, Korea starts to really develop at a very miraculous rate. Right? Those of you who might be like econ or business finance majors, some of you might be uh, you know, familiar with this story. Okay? And then if you fast forward to where Korea is today in 2012, we see that Korea is you know, it's pretty much a miracle. Right? And I want you guys to really, really meditate on that for a second. Back in 1950, Korea was more impoverished than the nation of Kenya. Yeah, Korea was more impoverished than the nation of the Philippines. Right? Did Korea do anything particularly special to deserve this crazy miracle? No, it was basically just a manifestation of God's grace and his faithfulness. He allowed the gospel to enter into this nation. He allowed people to be just set ablaze with that spirit of intercession where they would go to the extent of waking up at 4.30 in the morning to go to these mountains and pray. Right? So God is so faithful to this nation, little by little, even with the division of this peninsula, which was such a tragedy, even through that, God was faithful because he allowed so many of these intercessors from North Korea to enter into South Korea and to continue to pray and intercede for this nation. So when you guys go outside on the street, when you sort of look at the developments of Korea, when you ride the subway, when you're able to use that application on your smartphone that tells like when the next bus is coming, right? when you're able to get Wi-Fi everywhere, when you're able to just ben- uh, gain, you know, glean the benefits of the rapid development of this nation, I want you guys to know that this is not, number one, this did not happen overnight. Okay, number one, it did not happen overnight. And number two, this is not me- uh, merely an economic phenomenon. This is a manifestation of God's grace. This is a miracle of God. Okay? So this is a truth that I want you guys to really receive in your hearts. Right? Because God did something very powerful in this nation. A lot of people are not aware of that. Right? But I sort of, you know, sort of released this truth to you, sort of explained this progression to you. And one thing I want to propose to you right now is that just as Korea is an example of a nation that had an encounter with Jesus, just as Korea is an example of a nation that got to know the truth of Jesus, and just as Korea is a nation that was set free, set free from poverty, set free from this bondage as a result of their encounter with Jesus, I want to propose to you that what God did in Korea, God can do in other nations as well. Right? So the reason why I'm sharing this message with you tonight is that this is basically the cry of my heart. This is basically the cry of my heart. I have tasted and seen on an individual level that God is so good. He instantly delivered me of unforgiveness against my father. Right? Over the period of, several, of maybe I think two years, he delivered me from depression. Like I've tasted and seen that he's so good. I know that he's real. I can testify any day of the week. Number one, I've seen that on an individual level. And living here in Korea, I see that on a national scale as well. Right? This development, everything that you see, high-tech this, gadgets that, every single thing is a testimony of the fact that God's faithfulness to Korea is very real. The power of his gospel is very real. Right? The transformative power of the gospel is so real. Amen. Right? So the thing is, okay, so, so follow with me for a moment. So the truth has set Korea free, right? We're all in agreement with that. The truth can set the nations free. So I want to give you an example, a small sort of micro example of how this truth can set the nations free. So back in 2007, I 
had a three-month vision tour, mission tour in the nation of India. So even these shoes that I'm wearing, I bought in India back in 2007. It's sort of like a reminder of that time. And uh, yeah, my trip in India was pretty amazing because it was during that time that the Lord showed me that this Jesus thing, that this gospel thing, it really works. Because I had grown up in the church. I sung praise songs, you know, I like tasted and seen in small bits that he was so good. But I didn't like... I had my doubts as to how practical the gospel was, right? Yeah, like I know God, I know Jesus, but what does that mean to the nations, right? What does that mean to government systems? Yeah, like it applies to me, but is it really applicable on a larger scale? But what had happened in India was that I spent a lot of time volunteering at an orphanage called Grace Home, uh, Grace Home for Children in the city of Delhi in India, and it was really interesting because a lot of the students at this orphanage, they have pretty crazy testimonies. There was this one student I remember. He came to the orphanage at, at the age of six. And what had happened was after his parents had passed away, he was left with a distant uncle. Okay? He was left with this distant uncle. And basically all day he had to herd goats in the countryside all day. And it wasn't until he came home at 6 p.m. every night that he had his first meal of the day. That was his life. The six-year-old boy uh, living in the rural areas of India. And what had happened was, on his first morning at the orphanage, like he was rescued somehow, he was brought to Grace home. Uh, at his, his first morning at the orphanage, all the children, they gathered in their dining area. They sat down in the really cute lines. And some of the older students, they started passing out the breakfast food for the day. And it was very humble food. It was just like roti. It was just a flat bread and like dal, like very, very simple. And what happened was that this boy, as soon as he saw the food, he started to cry. He started crying and crying and crying. Because the thing is that he had never received food without working for it before in his life. Right? So this, this notion of breakfast, of being served food, of being able to eat without working for it, it was completely foreign to him. Right? So that, this is like one example of some of the testimonies that were at Grace Home. Right? There were some other, uh, some of the older girls, they were like this close to being sold into, like, into sex trafficking. There were guys that were completely like, molested, harassed by street gangs. Like some of the testimonies from Grace Home are pretty intense. But what really boggled my mind was that while I was at Grace Home, these children, they had, this, they had this brightness on their face. Like, they had so much love for each other. I couldn't even explain it. Because the thing is that I had spent some time doing, you know, orphanage work and volunteering in America, in Korea as well. Right? But these are sort of like very secular orphanages. It's more run like a business. But the thing with Grace Home is that it's run by a man named Pastor John, and he's very much like an on-fire evangelist, missionary, church planter. He's, he's solid. So what happens at Grace Home is that every morning, those children wake up and they have dawn prayer together, right? And then every evening, they have evening prayer together. But this is not the sort of thing where you, they, the children just get used to it and, you know, they don't want to go anymore. But it's something that they all look forward to with this genuine enthusiasm, right? So this is a situation at Grace Home. And after working and living at Grace Home for three months, I started, the wheels started to turn in my head. I said, man... Like, these children that I'm teaching at this orphanage, like, they're proof that this Jesus stuff works. You know, they're proof that this gospel thing works. Because I, myself, I had gone to orphanages before, you know. I, you know, I, but the thing 
is that a lot of the orphanages that I had uh, spent time at before, a lot of the testimonies of the children, they didn't really compare to the testimonies of the children at Grace Home. I mean, granted, it's apples and oranges, right? Suffering is suffering, but, you know, I, I never heard testimonies like the ones I'd heard at Grace Home. But for some reason, the children who had gone through so much crap, their faces shone with this great uh, brightness. They had so much love for each other. Right? They looked out for each other. They prayed for each other. They praised with each other. They danced with each other. And it was during my time at Grace Home that the Lord really started to alter the way that I think about the gospel. And he altered the way that I think about Jesus. Right? And he altered the way I started to think about this whole Christianity thing. So this is what can happen in the nations on sort of a micro level, on a small level. Okay? And then let's sort of take a step back. Let's look at it on a macro level, a slightly larger a scale. So back in 2011, um, the summer of 2011, I'd gone on a mission trip to the nation of Bangladesh. Right? So Sarah Wan was on this trip with me as well. And Tina, is, where's Tina? Tina. So Tina was there, Sarah Wan was there. And yo, man, I'm not going to lie, Bangladesh is pretty tough. Bangladesh is really tough because we go there in the middle of summer, but we basically spent like every single day just under the sun. Like no joke. Because we'd be in the hotel, we leave the hotel. When we traveled, it wasn't inside a van. It was on top of this like wooden board that was on wheels attached to a tractor. Right? So we'd just be bumping along all day under the sun. And when we did ministry, it was always outdoors. It was in the shade of trees. So it was like physically, like Bangladesh is pretty draining. But the thing is, this is a trip where we saw like 1,000 people like open their hearts to Jesus. Like 1,000 people expressing a desire to get to know Jesus in the span of one week. Right? So you suffer much for the gospel, but then the truth is so great. It's like completely worth it, right? But one thing, I remember one memory from uh, my time in Bangladesh. I don't know if Sarah and Tina remember this, but one day we were stuck in traffic late at night. Okay, we were stuck in traffic late at night. We were all crammed into this van. There was zero circulation inside this van. And the AC was barely working. But we couldn't really open the windows because the air was so dusty outside. So we were basically stuck in this, like, van, sauna. It smelled wonderful, right? Like, my, my sticky arm was stuck next to my teammate's sticky arm. And it just wasn't very pleasant. And it was late at night. We were all stuck on this, like, two-lane road. I think there was traffic jams going in both directions. I was sitting in that van. And I remember looking outside the window. And next to me, like, on, on, I guess, the lane to the side, there was this public bus, a public bus in Bangladesh. So public buses in Bangladesh are very different from public buses in Korea, let me tell you. Right, so it's just basically this big um, metal, rusty vehicle. And it didn't really have windows, it just had bars, right? So I was looking inside this public bus, and I saw all these people who were just crammed into that bus. And as uncomfortable as I felt in that van at that moment, the people in the bus looked way more uncomfortable. They were like, they were really cramped in there. Like there were women carrying like children and bundles of food. And it was just, it was just really unpleasant. And I, I, and as, as like disgusting as I felt at that moment, I knew that it, it was a lot worse inside that, inside that public bus. And it was really interesting because for me, like I've been to a lot of poor countries in my life. 
know, I've been to a lot of countries in the developing world, and I've seen poverty, and, you know, I got over it, whatever. But for some reason, when I was in Bangladesh, the Lord really sensitized me to poverty. I can't explain it. Like, I've been to really poor nations. I've been to really hot nations, like, at the equator, in the summer. And I was like, I was not phased. I was like, whatever, I'm a missionary, right? But for some reason in Bangladesh, like, I was so sensitized to it. Like, when it was hot, it was really hot. When it was sweaty, it was really sweaty. When people's arms were stinky, like, it was, you know, like, everything was just magnified. It, it didn't make sense. So I was sitting in that van, and I was just like, man... Like, I know I'm the missions director, but this sucks, right? And, of course, I didn't say anything. Uh, like, you know, I, I know I'm the missions director, but this sucks. I look at the bus inside, and I said, man, that sucks even more. And in the midst of this, like, just like, you know, me sitting there, for some reason, like, I start to get this, like, holy anger inside of my heart. And I said, man, like, Lord, like, I know that I've been made in your image, right? The people in that bus, they've been made in your image, why is it that they have to live this way? It's like, God, why do they have to live in this poverty? I mean, granted, yeah, it sucks for me during this one week in Bangladesh, but I get to go back to Korea, right? Korea is prosperous. Korea has air conditioning. Korea has ventilation. But why is it that these people who have been created in your image, why is it that they have to live like this, God? Why does it have to be like this sort of poverty? And like I said, we were stuck on a two-lane road, traffic jams in both directions and i said god this is so inefficient like why is the infrastructure in this nation so bad and it wasn't like me grumbling you know it wasn't me complaining but i was like god like they deserve so much more why is this nation stuck in this poverty why are they stuck in this demonic poverty why god and i was like i was crying out to the lord out this anger was just stirring up inside of my heart right and in the midst of this the Lord, he actually reminded me of a passage that I had read in a book, right? And this is the book. I brought it with me today. It's called Truth and Transformation, A Manifesto for Ailing Nations. And I'd highly recommend this book. And in this book, um, the author, Vishal Mangalwadi, he basically, he spends some time, he spends some time explaining why poverty is demonic, okay? This is it's really interesting. I mean, he, he doesn't say it with, like, I'm sort of, like, over-dramatizing it, but that's how I receive it. You know, poverty is demonic. And I'm just going to explain to you sort of the thought process that he goes through, right? I was having my own thought process in Bangladesh in that van. So this author, he's an Indian Christian intellectual. He goes through a sort of similar thought process while he's visiting, I think, some Western European nation. He visits this milk farm, Okay. So in this milk farm, uh, he goes with, oh, it's in Holland. So he goes to Holland, he goes to this milk farm. So when you go to this dairy farm, you basically, you get like your bucket of milk, you put your money in the basket and you just go. That's it. Complete honor code. There's complete trust. And the thing is, when uh, Mr. Mangalwadi, when he saw the situation, he was pretty flabbergasted. He said, man, this would never happen in India. Seriously, this would never happen in India because if you had an open dairy farm like this, like the Indians, they would, take, they would take the milk, they would take the cow, they would take the change, they would take everything. Nothing would be left in that fair. And the thing is, if you think about it, it sort of makes sense, right? This sort of scenario, it would work in Holland. Maybe it would work in like, you know, like Iowa, I don't know. Like, yeah, yeah Tina says, yeah, it might work in Iowa. But then in Togo, would it work in Togo? Probably not, right? In Vietnam, I don't really think so. Right? So, so Mr. Mangawad, he's sort of, he's sort of thinking through this process as to why this can occur in Holland, but why it cannot occur in India. And he says, you know, 
Let's say that this dairy farm were in India, right? If he, if Mr. Mangawadi and the average Indian were inclined to steal milk from the dairy farm, the dairy farm, they would have to hire a sales girl to protect, you know, to look over the money and to protect, you know, the milk reserves. But who would pay for the sales girl? It would be him, the customer, who pays for the sales girl, Okay. And then, if the consumers are dishonest, right, if the customers dis are dishonest, then why would the supplier be honest, right? What's to keep him from, you know, the, what's to keep the owner of the dairy farm from adding water to his milk, like watering it down to get more profit, right? So, like, let's say that the owner does add water to his milk to increase his profit. So then maybe there would be these activists that rise up in protest against this, Right? So then they would say, oh, the government, the government, they need to appoint inspectors to make sure that there is like fair business practice. But ultimately, who would pay for these government inspectors? It would be him, the taxpayer, right? So let's keep on continuing. So if the consumer is dishonest, if the supplier is dishonest, why would the inspectors be honest, right? So they would be, you know, taking their bribes left and right because they don't get paid adequately from their government, right? And then as a result of this, who is to keep them from passing laws that make, I don't know, that make it easier for the milk to expire before it's sold to the consumer, you know, because they want to make more money. So through this situation, this is sort of like a small glimpse of the fact that poverty is very much rooted in corruption, and corruption is very demonic, okay? So if you look at this, the whole situation with the dairy farm, it could have been very feasible in the nation of Holland, perhaps, Right? But this is a situation that wouldn't really happen in the nation of India. Right? Here we see in this example, right, we see sort of it laid out a little bit more as to why poverty is quite demonic. Right? The absence of morality is quite demonic. Right? And if we don't have morality, it's not just an absence of morality. It leads to poverty. Right? You guys are all following me, right? So this is a pretty interesting chain to sort of keep note of as you're thinking about missions, as you're thinking about the nations, as you're thinking about the ability for the gospel to transform nations. Okay? So we see sort of the macro, we saw the micro in Grace Home in India. We saw the macro in Bangladesh. And even, you know, this example that is laid out in uh, Truth and Transformation in the book. Right? And I want to also propose to you an example of how, you know, the truth can set the nations free. Right? The truth of Jesus can set the nations free from poverty. It can set the nations free from corruption, even in a systemic way. So, for example, for myself, I went to grad school in Korea. Where I went to SNU. I went to the Graduate School of International Studies. And it was really interesting because while I was at SNU, there were a lot of grad students coming from Iran. There were students coming from Saudi Arabia. There were students coming from all these closed nations where we can never send missionaries, where we can never send mission trips. And it was very, very, very interesting. Because do you know what motivated these students to come to Korea? They wanted to learn about the development model of this nation. Right? That's really interesting. Think about it for a second. Right? So all these people, they come from Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia, that's where you have Mecca. Right? It's like the most Muslim nation in the world. Right? You have these government officials 
being sent by the government of Saudi Arabia to the to Korea to study at SNU to have government internships to sort of learn what is it that allowed Korea to develop, to develop in this way. And likewise, you have government officials coming from the nation of Iran, from Indonesia, from Laos, all these closed nations that are so hostile towards the gospel. But it's so funny because these these government officials, these Daniels, these Josephs, right? They come to Korea looking for the, 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 the secret of development. But what did we say before? What was the secret of development in the nation of Korea? It was Jesus. It was the nation of Korea. It was the people of Korea and the nation of Korea uh, encountering Jesus and being set free by this revelation of Jesus, by walking at the truth of the gospel, right? So I think as I was sort of as I was taking my grad school classes in SNU, and as these points like, started to connect with each other, I said, man, like, this is pretty insane. Like, God, yeah, I know that you were good. Like, you set me free. That was pretty sweet, right? Like, the orphans in India, yeah, like, they're a lot better now. But, like, God kept on increasing the scale, right? He kept on increasing my capacity to see the power of the gospel, Right? The power of the gospel, the power of the truth of Jesus, right? You will know the truth. What is the truth? The truth is Jesus. You will know the truth, and this truth, this Jesus will set you free. This happens on an individual level, right? It happens on a national level. It happens on a systemic level as well. So as these, as these points were starting to come together, I said, man, Lord, this is, this is pretty insane. This is pretty insane. And it's as these ideas start to sort of take shape in my mind, and it's as these ideas start to take shape in my spirit, that I start to realize, man, this is my vision. Lord, this is what I live for. This is what I want, right? Because for me, I had majored in political science. I majored in international relations. I did a lot of internships and conflict resolution, development, all that stuff. All the solutions that the world offers to poor nations, I was a part of it. And I saw that, yeah, it works for a few months, but afterwards, the poor nations, they become very dependent on the rich nations. It becomes a form of charity, right? But ultimately, what these poor nations need, these developing nations, I don't want to say poor, what these developing nations need, they don't need charity. They don't need charity. They need Jesus, right? So this is ultimately, this is what became the, the cry of my heart. That's what became the desire of my heart. And as you guys know, New Philadelphia Church, we're entering into mission season. Well, well actually, mission season had already started, right? Amen. So we had our orientation this past Saturday. Who was, he, who was at orientation from this group? Yeah, it was really good. I was so blessed. Like the May students, they were some of the earliest attendees at that orientation. Yo, let me tell you, Emmaus students always set the bar when it comes to missions. Like, Emmaus students, I tell you, time and time again, it's the Emmaus students who are the most on fire. It's the Emmaus students who are the most faithful. It's the Emmaus students who have that crazy supernatural faith. So all you May students going on missions, like, I got my eye on you. Watch out. I got my eye on you. Yeah. But so, so like I said, as we enter into the season of missions at New Philadelphia Church, I want you guys to really keep this in mind, right? When we send out missionaries, like when we send out mission teams, right, it's not just about VBS. It's not just about building houses. You know, it's, not, it's about fire, but it's not just limited to that fire. Right? With every step that you take, right? with every prayer that you sow into this nation, right? with every day that you fast and pray for this nation, for those who are not going on missions, for every uh, support letter that you meet with financial offering, with every single step that we take, it's, we're doing our part to help set that nation free. Because if you think about it, look, think about Korea right now. Korea is the number one mission-sending nation per capita. But we send out the most, uh, in terms of numbers, the U.S. is number one. But in terms of percentage of the population, Korea is number one. 
But remember, what, what did I say at the very beginning of this message? Where was Korea in 1910? Where was Korea in 1950? Where was Korea in 1953? Korea was hecka poor, right? Korea was so poor. But fast forward to 2012, what, what is going on, right? Korea is, I think, number 15, like, when it comes to the most strongest economies of the world. Korea is number two when it comes to sending out missionaries to the nations. This is insane, right? This is what happens when the gospel really enters a nation and invades the nation and transforms the hearts and minds of the people of that nation, right? So as you guys, as we enter into this season of missions for Indonesia, for Japan, for Myanmar, for a lot of these developing nations. I want you guys to keep that in mind, right? Missions is not just a seasonal thing, right? It's not just a feel-good thing. Missions is not something that is just reduced to one-page testimony that you give out back to your supporters. It's so much bigger than that. It's so much bigger than that. Because think about the gospel. Think about your encounter with Jesus. Think about your testimony, right? You, like... Even that's a, that's a similar trajectory, right? For me, I said, man, Jesus, yeah, you're cool. Wow, orphans, man, India, man, Bangladesh, nations, systems. It's so much bigger than we think, right? So that's basically like, that's my heart in terms of what I want to share with you today, right? In terms of tracing the history of the nation of Korea, right? Thinking of God's faithfulness to the nation of Korea, Thinking about God's faithfulness to you as an individual, right? Know that these are not just like separate individual events. Everything is all very connected. Everything is a prophetic act of something else. What God, what God did in your life, what he set you free from, the revival that he's stirring up in your heart, that's a prophetic act of what he can do to a nation, right? And what the Lord did, for example, in the nation of Korea, this is a prophetic act of what God can do in the nation of Malaysia, Right? This is a prophetic act of what God can do in the nation of Togo, in the nation of Vietnam, in the nation of Myanmar, in the nation of Laos. Right? So that's my proposal to you today, and that's my challenge to you today. Right? Whatever God has been doing in your life, right, don't just limit it to yourself. Don't just limit it to yourself. Don't limit the power of the, of the gospel to just yourself. Right? Don't limit the power of the name of Jesus to just yourself. Don't limit your encounter with the truth to just yourself, right? Know that God has set that fire ablaze in your heart so you can share that fire with other people around you. And little by little, right, inch by inch, person by person, we start to really shine the light of Christ for what it's fully worth. You know what I'm saying? Amen. Okay, so let's, let's go into a time of prayer right now. Uh, Lord, Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for Emmaus Campus Ministry. And God, I thank you that truly the nations are represented in this room here tonight. And I thank you, God, that you were very specific in calling each and every one of these students uh, out to study in Korea, whether it be for a semester, whether it be for a year. And I thank you, God, that as each and every one of us, as we walk through the streets of Korea, God, as we use our smartphones, as we take the clean subways, as we use the ubiquitous Wi-Fi connection, God, let all of these blessings from you, God, be a reminder of your faithfulness to the nations. 
We thank you, God, that your faithfulness, to, your faithfulness is not just limited to us. Your faithfulness is not just limited to the nation of Korea. But we thank you, God, that the transformation that we've encountered, God, the transformation that we've received in your presence is something that you want to really release on such a larger scale, God. So I pray tonight that you really increase our capacity, not only to receive your love, not only to receive your transformation, God, but I pray that you increase our capacity to really fathom, to really dream big, to really stretch the limits, God, stretch the limits of our imagination, God. Because who knew back in 1910 that Korea would be where it is today? Who knew looking at our own lives, even 10 years ago, that we would be here today, God? So I thank you so much that what you did in our life, you're faithful to replicate in the lives of those around us. You're faithful to replicate in the nation of Korea. You're faithful to replicate in the nations as well. We thank you so much, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name.